Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Neil Almond. Hello. And together, we'll try and answer the question how do you solve a problem like reading fluency? And so I think it makes sense to start, Chris. What is reading fluency? I have got a simple answer or relatively simple answer to that question, but I hope listeners will not be surprised by the fact that I'm going to go around the houses a little bit first. It is a aspect of reading that comes quite naturally to us in terms of us describing it because there is an experiential element to it. When we talk about reading flowing, we immediately have an idea of what that might sound like. What are the qualitative and quantitative aspects of that? So in terms of quantitative things, we're talking about pace, accuracy, this sort of thing. In terms of the qualitative side of things, we're talking about what is sometimes termed prosody or expression. All of the things that lead to flow that you can detect that perhaps you can't put into numbers quite easily, like intonation, emphasis, tone, so reading fluency was regarded as something of an underdiscussed aspect of reading for some time, or at least this is what I can gather from the National Reading Panel Report of 2000. Now, the National Reading Panel Report in America of 2000 kind of begins to give a quite precise definition to reading fluency that is based on the research that's come before, that looks at the ideas of speed, accuracy and proper expression relating as I say to these quantitative and qualitative aspects of word flow that I discussed a moment ago. In 2005 a paper by Hudson et al nails that down a bit further really uses the terms accuracy, automaticity and prosody in quite precise terms and makes the point that this can't just relate to individual words it needs to be words in context so that we can start to connect prosody to meaning. In the same year, Pekulski and Chard, I won't say take issue with that, but do describe the idea of um, this, what I'll call almost empirical or experiential view of reading fluency as, they describe it as narrow or shallow, should I say. And this is made clear in the title of the paper, which describes fluency as a bridge between decoding and reading comprehension. And they have a list of recommendations that come from that that are all very sensible. Kuhn et al. in 2010 explore a lot of these definitions, a lot of these ways of looking at things, and in, in a way that I think is very sensible, once again, pin it down and say, we're talking about accuracy, automaticity, and prosody. We're talking about these things and we need to know that they facilitate meaning and that they apply equally to silent and oral reading but in the end it comes back to accuracy automaticity and prosody now the last thing to mention is that that's 2010 in the last 11 years or so there have been some papers that discuss fluency in the slightly more ambiguous terms that seem to make it synonymous or beginning to be synonymous with just comprehension but all in all, I think there is something of a consensus around this idea of accuracy, automaticity and prosody, as long as we bear in mind the idea that 
we are still thinking of this as something that contributes to meaning. And I think that kind of brings us up to date. Just the last thing to mention would be a really recent paper and a very interesting one. 20, uh, Duke and Cartwright, 2021, talk about reading fluency as this thing that is somewhat that is separate, is distinct from vocabulary, from sight word recognition, lots of other things that obviously do contribute to reading fluency. It's a really fascinating paper called the, I think, the active view or the active model of reading. I think it raises as many questions as it answers, which is what it's trying to do. It's trying to answer questions about the simple view of reading that people have had, um, but a fascinating paper nonetheless. Now, I've waffled for a long time, so I think it's really important for me just to quickly sum up what teachers absolutely need to know from this labyrinth of research over the last 20 odd years. And that is that there seems to be something of a consensus that a really valuable way to talk about reading fluency is in terms of the quantitative and qualitative aspects of it, which mean, in other words, accuracy, are the words right, automaticity, does it flow, does it move at a good pace, and prosody, does it sound like a spoken voice? And the other aspects to bear in mind is that fluency contributes to meaning, it has this relationship with reading and comprehension, and that it applies both to oral and to silent reading. Likewise, I agree with Christopher, whenever you're thinking about reading fluency, it always comes back to those kind of the big three, uh, accuracy, automaticity, and uh, prosody. Uh, some things that I'll uh, just talk about, which I think maybe Christopher perhaps missed out, is this idea of uh, fluency uh, being a continuum and not necessarily a, a threshold that uh, pupils get to. Uh, you are continuously improving your fluency when you're an expert reader, pretty much every time you are actually reading, there is an element of fluency that is improving whether you're a student who starts in year two, year three, year four, year five or six, whatever it may be, the fluency is naturally going to be different between what you would expect in uh, those year groups as well. Uh, another thing I'd just quite, I'd like to mention as well is that uh, if you are the disfluency or kind of slow reading, uh, it can be a product of a particular uh, writing system. Uh, English, as Chris has talked about uh, numerous times, this podcast has a very uh, uh, deep orthography. It's a complicated language, uh, multiple uh, grapheme, uh, phoneme correspondences for uh, multiple sounds. And so what you tend to find is that students who perhaps have only been uh, learning to read for perhaps one year in countries where uh, their language is uh, they have a far more shallow orthographic system. Uh, they tend to read uh, just as quick as children who have been learning to read English um, after about maybe four years of instruction. So when we need to think about fluency, I think that idea of it being a continuum, being it being tied down within the writing systems is quite an important one to make apparent because it's very easy, I think, to look at research and see different things that that relates to uh, different speeds, uh, you know, fluency of different children, whatever it might be, um, where the orthographic system uh, is perhaps, you know, a given or it's, you know, inferred rather than perhaps explicitly uh, written in the paper. So I think those are the only two kind of things that I think I'd add to um, what Chris has said. 
having talked about fluency, reading fluency in practice for teachers, how it can be observed, I think it's important to note a couple of other things. So it's worth noting that a lot of the discussion of reading fluency doesn't take account of the fact that it is naturally a construct. It's a construct that has limits that researchers and educators can define as they see fit. It's one thing to say that we can detect aspects of it in the world, we can test for it, for want of a better phrase. It's another thing to say that this is the correct way to define it. There is an extent to which reading fluency and the phrase as, as it is, is ours to manipulate. It's ours to define as we see fit, as we find most useful. And I just hope that education researchers are kind of quite careful with that construct and think about how it's most useful to educators as much as trying to use it just to explain things. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that's, that's why I quite like the analogy that's made uh, about uh, reading fluency, that it's this kind of bridge between decoding and comprehension because it kind of keeps those two things separate. You can see how this automaticity of sight word, of you know, quick word recognition combines those two areas together, but still keeps them as separate entities. But there is that reciprocal nature that they both complement each other. So I like that analogy of this, that bridge between those two aspects. Exactly. I mean, the reality of when we talk about anything relating to reading and we say that this is a, a thing, a distinct thing that we can talk about, there's immediately a simplification going on. Every aspect of reading, as, we, as it develops, interacts more and more with every other aspect of reading. In fact, um, a colleague who I respect um, descri described one aspect of reading fluency as the idea of all the other bits that we think about kind of knitting together, tightening together. One of the things that I quite like about the visual imagery of the reading rope, actually, is the idea of things knitting together, of uh, kind of raveling as such. So, yeah, it is a simplification to say that reading fluency is a separate thing from reading comprehension, but it's a necessary and useful simplification. That's what we're doing with when we describe any aspect of reading, be it vocabulary or sight word recognition or syntax or semantics. We're always taking something and, and artificially separating it from the rest of the things that it influences in order to study it and to learn a bit more about it. One of the things that really comes across, you know, when we're talking about reading is the need to read lots to develop this sort of fluency and stuff. And, and in listening to what you both said, a question came to mind based on the link between comprehension and fluency and that relationship that you've just described. Is there a certain threshold at which if I don't understand X percent of the words, I start getting less of a payoff for the practice that I've done? In terms of the actual knowing of the, the meaning of the physical vocabulary, uh, you're talking, I think, about anything under 96% of the words. If you don't know, that's when comprehension, that particular piece kind of starts to decay uh, and then Chris obviously correct me if I'm wrong here but the rough estimates and that's all these ever are they're only ever estimates I don't think there's any 
high quality empirical research that says this is the magic number specifically, but anything under 90 words correct per minute in terms of your read, child's reading fluency is when you start um, children are having to use too much uh, cognitive resources to actually decode the actual uh, text so they can't then attend to the meaning and the comprehension of that piece. Yeah, there's some suggestion as well that the type of text matters as well. It tends to be the case that readers tend to find narrative easier to understand, generally speaking, than nonfiction. And thus you can get away with knowing fewer of the words. Don't quote me on that, but it's what I've seen from experience. And I think I've seen it referenced in research as well. Generally speaking, as Neil says, there's no specific number, no tight threshold. But again, speaking from personal experience, I've seen children's ability to understand the basics of a text change markedly between the sort of 80 and 120 words correct per minute mark, though it's worth noting, of course, that it's in that region where children start to develop prosody, start to be able to group words into phrases. They start to be able to un seemingly be able to understand what's coming next in a, in a sentence. They've got the cognitive resources to, to see where this is going. And no doubt this is reflected in the way that their eyes are moving across a text. So yeah, there's, there is certainly something of a threshold. It's just that it will be different for every child, for every text. And it, yeah, it will, it will vary based on those. So then how does reading fluency develop? Again, having already discussed the idea that all aspects of reading over time knit together to create a reading fluency or to allow for reading fluency, I could basically say every aspect of reading and talk about them, but I am going to restrict the development of fluency and the discussion of it down to a few key things. Obviously, the ability to decode with some level of accuracy and automaticity relies on a knowledge of sound spelling correspondences and the phonemic skills to use those sound spelling correspondences. In other words, the knowledge and skills taught in phonics. It's also the case, of course, that children need a level of language comprehension. They need to understand the words that are on the page, how they go together, how they fit together to create meaning when they are in a, a spoken sentence. So it develops alongside language comprehension as well. The reason I mention these in particular and the reason I bring up phonics especially is that it's best to think of phonics as a kickstart at the beginning of this journey towards fluency. I do see people online and in other places talking about phonics as if we teach sound spelling correspondences, phonemic skills, and now we can just, you know, children will be able to decode anything. That isn't the case. Phonics gives a bank of sound spelling correspondences and related phonemic skills that allow children to begin tackling text. And it's the process of then tackling text 
that will encompass the rest of the journey towards fluency. Children will encounter words where the sound spelling correspondences are unfamiliar to them, regardless of how thorough their phonics program is. This is the reason why phonics programs can get away with having different numbers of sound spelling correspondences taught within them. Some teach 100 or so, some go up to 175 or more. It's because we're not teaching them everything. We can't. What we're doing is giving a kickstart to this process. Now, this process that begins is a process of advanced pattern recognition that is sometimes called orthographic learning, which is a fancy way of saying we learn the spelling system in which English is written. The most famous description of this progression of orthographic learning is by um, Linnea Eri, who talks about different phases. Now, it's worth noting that these phases overlap. They don't have hard boundaries between them, but they are just considered phases that, as I say, overlap going from the beginning reader to the much more expert reader. They start with a pre-alphabetic phase, which might be where children are dealing with words and letters that doesn't relate to phonemes at all, whereby a child might see, this is a famous example, the McDonald's sign and say, that's McDonald's. You could argue that it's reading because they're working out what the word says from some form of symbol, but there's no phonemic aspect in there whatsoever. It's pre-alphabetic. The next stage is a partial alphabetic phase, which involves some use of sound spelling correspondences, often just the those at the start of words, but it can be um, throughout words as well. But it isn't attempting to use phonemes throughout the word. A lot of children, in my experience, who I've taught in year five, six, who have real issues, you can argue are somewhat stuck at this partial alphabetic phase. They are um, decoding the first couple of letters in a word and then just guessing the rest. You can argue that they are still in a partial alphabetic phase. The next phase is full alphabetic. We want them to be using sound spelling correspondences and their phonemic skills to try and decode the entirety of words, even if some of the sound spelling correspondences that they come across, like the O oh in yacht, are unfamiliar to them. And the final phase is the consolidated alphabetic phase. Now, this is the point where new readers, what they're effectively doing is instead of just looking at individual phonemes, though this is where it, the beginnings of it come from, they are starting to be able to put together morphemes, syllables, even whole words, and memorize these through phonemic decoding to begin with, but they're beginning to memorize these as larger chunks so that they can start to decode unfamiliar words using larger chunks that they already have. That describes Aries phases of reading development. And a kind of an important offshoot of this is the idea of orthographic mapping. Now, orthographic learning was just pattern recognition of all of the English language in larger and larger chunks. Orthographic mapping is a specific aspect of that, whereby through the decoding of words repeatedly and connecting them to pronunciations that you already have in your head, you turn that word into a sight word. Over time, it becomes over after perhaps two, three, four, five 
repetitions of decoding it, it becomes a word that you can recognize by sight. People listening in really carefully and who have heard me talking about phonics and stuff in the past might say, well, hang on a minute. You've explicitly said that we can't uh, learn words by sight. That's what you've said. You can't, we can't learn words by sight. Well, that's still true. It is absolutely possible to develop a sight word vocabulary without learning individual words by as whole units. The whole point of orthographic mapping and the orthographic learning that underpins it is that it is the process of decoding it. In other words, analyzing and tackling words bit by bit with larger and larger chunks that over time allow us to develop a sight word vocabulary. It doesn't mean that we are learning whole words as single units to begin with. That is the thing that is not possible. Just to uh, extend on that ever so slightly, building and bringing in another kind of a useful conceptual framework. If you haven't read uh, Mark Seinberg's language at the speed of sound, I highly recommend it. He has a really interesting diagram. Uh, it's triangular. Uh, and on the, uh, the top vertex, there's meaning. On the bottom left, there's um, what he calls uh, spelling or orthography. And on the bottom right, there's phonology. And on the offshot of meaning, there's also context as well, which is quite important, which we'll probably come back to uh, later. And so what that diagram tries to, uh, again, it's only a model, so it has its weaknesses, as all models do. What that tries to explain is that experienced readers can access word meanings not only through sound, but via this other route uh, that directly matches letters to knowledge of how words are spelled. So the orthography of that particular word. And that's kind of, again, how we think about orthographic mapping can actually happen. We get to that point where, yes, we've gone to the point where we know our phonics, we know those to the point of um, mastery, we understand the component skills of segmenting, blending and uh, manipulation. And so what we can rely on then is this system of orthography, which we can detract, which we can extract the meaning from. So we can actually then look at the way that a word is spelled. Chris, again, orthographic mapping, uh, really, really important uh, aspect. The only thing I think I would also add is that when we begin to orthographically map and when this starts to occur, um, in the course of reading specific words, uh, readers, they form connections um, between written units. So this can be at the single um, grapheme pattern, but it can also orthographically map larger patterns. So you could orthographically map uh, various morphemes, for example, of very various uh, syllable patterns. And it's these connections which help to retain this, uh, this glue, as it were, that kind of helps you build up this um, sight word vocabulary. In terms of what I think, of going to them some practicalities now, in terms of what I think teachers uh, can do, again, make sure that you are teaching your children you know, really rigorously when it comes to uh, phonics, whatever phonics program you're actually using, just make sure that you are, you know, you're teaching that exceptionally well. Spelling is also quite an important aspect because it's that reciprocal um, relationship between the internalizing what those sounds are and getting them out of this kind of orthographic mapping system. So it's the almost reverse nature of being able to take the code from off the page 
I think it's just also fair to say that just because you've taught your phonics program, again, doesn't mean that the kids have actually learned it or doesn't mean that they've learned it to that point of automaticity for orthographic mapping to actually uh, having to really take effect and for it to really kind of the process really starting. It's not just the case of children, you know, you showing uh, the letter M and then children after, you know, one or two seconds of thinking go, oh, that's Mm, it needs to be automatic it needs to be straight away for all of these things to really happen and this say the sight word vocabulary to really start building up it's absolutely really important that people do not confuse the idea of a sight word vocabulary developing with the idea of people learning words by sight it's absolutely essential that we emphasize that the process of orthographic mapping takes place through repeated phonemic decoding. While we develop a grasp of whole morphemes and syllables in the consolidated alphabetic phase, it's important to note that that's not how we teach these things in phonics. These chunks build up through the process of orthographic mapping as children are exposed to text. Now, this doesn't mean that it isn't incredibly valuable to teach children about things like morphology, but it certainly isn't how I would construct a phonics program to begin with. The other thing I'll quickly note, Neil mentioned Mark Seinenberg's book. There's a fascinating part in there about neural networks. When we talk about this development of an understanding of the orthography of English, this incredibly complex system of spelling in English, what we're really talking about is a probabilistic system, or at least, at least this is how it's visualized by reading researchers who are trying to model the brain in a computational way. Now, what I mean by that is that a system is set up in which someone becomes over time through exposure to words, more and more able to guess, for want of a better phrase, but educated guess, a probabilistic guess, what the sounds are likely to represent. A really good example of that is, I'm, I'm gonna make, make up a word now. Um, think about the word, I'm gonna spell it out. M-I-N-D-L-E. Now I'm hoping that that isn't a real word. If it is, I apologize. But at the very least, I hope it's a word that none of you will have come across. Now, how if you came across that in a text, how would you pronounce it if you were reading it out loud what you would expect in your head it's likely that you'll think it's mindle but why not mindle why not because when we see the word kind and mind and find we use the i sound represented by the letter i so why in mindle am i thinking it's mindle rather than mindle well this is a made-up word so there's no right answer here but there's something in my brain that has been tuned over my years and years and years of accessing lots of written words to say it's more likely to be Mindle, maybe because I've seen words like Kindle, for example. And this is the case over time. We develop this through experience with language. It's an understanding of the probabilities that arise inside the language. Now, this doesn't mean that it doesn't occasionally misfire. I spent years thinking that the word hyperbole was 
hyperbole. Why? Because I'd come across mole and roll and soul, all of these other little chunks that usually end ole. And the idea of O-L-E representing early was new to me, so I got it wrong. So this is not to say that the system is perfect, but it does lead us towards, over time, and towards an understanding of the language. If you're really interested in that, I would highly recommend a set of YouTube videos by a YouTuber called Three Blue One Brown, who is, I think, a mathematician and computer type. And there's an introduction on this person's site to neural networks. Now, neural networks effectively are something that are described within Seidenberg's book. He deals with neural networks and it describes how you can take a continuous or an exceptionally complicated input and over time tune a system for it to give specific outputs that are more often than not correct. And this idea of tuning this system by changing the weights and biases that are within it is their way, is the researcher's way of mimicking or attempting to model, I should say, what goes on in the human brain. So if you're interested in that, highly recommend checking out Neural Networks by 3Blue1Brown on YouTube and then going to Seidenberg's book to look at where he's talking about neural networks. Because if you're anything like me, the neural network bit will just go straight over your head without a bit of time dedicated to these admittedly quite complicated videos that I'm only beginning to grasp the basics of. If I'm right here, Chris, what you're describing there is kind of this orthographic learning and this statistical model and all of that um, and how that all works. Uh, on a more basic level, you might remember a pretty big kind of internet meme in the early thousands about a uh, uh, if you can read this, uh, you are in the top 90% geniuses or whatever, and all the letters were rearranged in uh, a different way, but in such a way where you could actually still read the text itself. Uh, and the reason you can actually read that is because of this statistical modelling to realise, well, actually, having read these parts of the words of the letter, um, Statistically, these are the bits that are going to come up next. This kind of goes some way to explain why some fluent expert readers might sometimes make a, a mistake because this process is actually almost overtaking because it's a far more efficient process than actually, you know, reading it off the paper at this at the stage when you're an, uh, an expert reader. It's why those mistakes often happen with expert readers because this statistical process your brain is telling you well the next likely thing to happen is this so when it's not uh, that's when those errors tend to tend to happen yeah there's there's definitely some statistical learning that contributes to that it's also worth noting that the i think it's something by cambridge university has shown that if they yeah. keep the first and last letter the same and there's lots of the words are short if you actually do this experiment with a regular bit of text that's, you know, anything off Wikipedia, it actually becomes quickly incomprehensible. We've talked here about the fact that phonics kickstarts the process and that phonemic decoding is absolutely essential to the development of a sight word vocabulary through orthographic mapping. The process through which this happens independently is described by 
share in a paper by share 1995 i think it's david share uh, i hope if not it's share 1995 and it talks about the, the self-teaching hypothesis which is tightly linked to orthographic mapping the other thing just to very briefly note is that it's very easy to get caught up in the idea that english is a phonemic language and it is we represent phonemes in written english but a layer of complexity that's in there and that is part of this process of orthographic learning is implicitly recognizing that English is actually morphophonemic, which means that yes, it represents phonemes, but that morphemes play quite a large role in what makes the written language what it is. So just a reminder that a phoneme is the smallest unit of sound in spoken language, while a morpheme is the smallest unit of meaning in a written language. So for example, we could have ED representing the past tense. We can have S representing plurals and the present tense in certain circumstances. And there are other morphemes. The key thing is that the morphemes are units of meaning. They're the smallest meaningful units of meaning. So if we take the morpheme ED as an example, as a way of showing the past tense in written English, and we look at it in two words like walked and hinted, you can see that the morpheme is represented consistently in its spelling in ED, but the phonemes that are represented are inconsistent between the two. And this happens with other morphemes, such as the letter S showing the present tense or plurals, which is generally consistent in how it's spelt, but represents different phonemes depending on the word we're talking about. So in the word walks and boys, we have a different sound represented by that letter S, even though the morpheme is consistent. English is, or can be considered to be, a morphophonemic language. And it's this morphology that becomes more and more important as children start to go through the process of orthographic learning. It's fascinating stuff. You know, I, I don't feel as bad about mispronouncing subitizing now because clearly that's come from, you know, one of those many situations where you've only ever seen a word written down and you've just sort of gone with, well, what does, what does my vocabulary suggest is going to be? So that makes total sense. That's actually a brilliant example. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's like, that's, that's the perfect example because every time you and I have seen SUB, it's been representing the morpheme sub from the latin root word and it's so it's representing under something so we've seen submarine subordinate subtraction etc whereas in subitizing it isn't representing that morpheme anymore it's from the word subito so yeah it's yeah that's, that's a perfect example and i think the conversation seems to be etching naturally closer and closer to the classroom so I suppose my next question would be why do some children struggle to become fluent readers? So I think there's a few, uh, for those of you familiar with cognitive load theory, you can kind of use uh, that kind of framework to really kind of understand why in one particular aspect that, uh, that links to cognitive load theory is that the idea that LeBurge and Samuels put together in 1974, which is all about uh, the automaticity theory, which is that uh, 
in terms of reading, a fluent reader decodes text automatically. Uh, that is, you know, without attention to the actual uh, graphemes that are written down. Um, and this leaves attention uh, free for comprehension to finally actually take place. So why some children uh, may not actually become fluent readers is because they haven't actually reached this uh, automaticity level in uh, to parallels with cognitive load theory. These aren't automatic in their long-term memory. They're still using uh, large parts of their working memory to actually physically decode. I think it's worth mentioning here that there are two types of slow readers that you can get. There'll be those children uh, who read slow because they cannot decode. So they're inaccurate in what they're actually decoding. That's because they don't know those graphene phoneme correspondences. Um, but you'll also have the children who read slowly kind of despite good decoding skills. That first type of reader, so that reader who's slow because they cannot decode, uh, they'll need uh, a different type of intervention compared to the, the second child who can decode but is slow to decode. So if you have a child who uh, can't decode, obviously that just means you need to do more phonics with them. I think what else we can kind of look at, which kind of helps us to understand why some children kind of really too struggle to pose, is actually when we look at uh, the perceptual span in adults. So that's basically what you see. If you're looking at a piece of paper um, and you're looking at a piece of text, yes, your main focus is going to be on the words that you're looking at, but there's also what's going on in that peripheral as well. Um, the average peripheral span, um, perceptual span of an adult is around uh, 14 to 15 characters uh, to the right of any kind of fixation. Uh, and what skilled readers tend to do is that they use all that information uh, as long as well with all that orthographic mapping to kind of statistically uh, analyze what might come next. Uh, span is similar, but it is far fewer in children. So they only have about uh, 11 characters, uh, Rayner seems to suggest. But what was interesting is that children, they kind of rely more on their central vision. They tend not to take advantage of the information to the right of these fixations that they have until naturally they're around 12 years old. That doesn't actually mean that, you know, we need to spend time with children kind of practicing this skill in isolation. But one of the reasons why children kind of tend to be less fluent or why they may tend to struggle is because they actually, they're at the point where they can't quite make use of this uh, information. And that's where I'm sure we'll get to it later as to how we can actually develop this fluency uh, to help them improve. But once children kind of get there, um, they can use that information that's in that uh, perceptual scan that tends to be uh, initial letters, word length, syntax and context. And that kind of narrows the choice of words that can go in that next slot in that sentence. And that kind of links back to then that brain being that kind of big data machine and organizer at statistical probability machine that can kind of work out where, well, if this is what's come next, you know, if you see SCR, Okay, you can probably guess that the next kind of letter is probably going to be a, a vowel of some kind and not another consonant. And, and so again, that kind of just explains, in my opinion, why it is that some children don't necessarily become uh, 
fluent readers summarizing it. So either because they don't know enough graphene phoning correspondences yet, and so they're actually inaccurate in their decoding, or that they're actually just very slow in their decoding and they're not there yet. And I'm sure we'll go into how we actually get them to be that to be at that point, I'm sure, uh, later on. But I'm sure I want to bring in uh, Chris's ideas for this particular question. Going to sound like a broken record here a little bit, but as fluency is so tightly linked to all the other aspects of reading, in terms of why fluent reading might not develop, it's really hard to pin it down to just a, a few things. Neil's absolutely on the money when he's talking about gaps in the things that are learned through phonics. So could be a gap in phonemic awareness skills and phonemic manipulation or in sound spelling correspondences. And these things could have come about through issues related to sight or hearing that are either troublesome to the child or as yet undetected. I mean, the prevalence of things like glue ear is surprisingly high and can be very difficult for children to learn phonics if they are um, struggling with that. Naturally, language comprehension gaps, and by gaps, I mean any weaknesses in language comprehension. So a lack of vocabulary breadth, a lack of vocabulary depth in certain circumstances, but particularly but vocabulary breadth can um, make becoming a fluent reader much harder because this is a crucial part of orthographic mapping that the pronunciation and the meaning of the word get in Eri's phrase glued to the spelling that's on the page. If you don't know what the word means to begin with, then what chances do you have of orthographically mapping the word? So if, if your vocabulary isn't particularly broad, then you're going to struggle to develop as a fluent reader. It's why I can't remember who said it. I wish I could. If I find who it is, I will give due credit. But I remember someone saying that if you don't put the attention into language comprehension with young children while you're teaching them phonics, for example, then you are just setting them up for issues further down the line. I think if I remember correctly, I think it was actually Tim Timothy Shanahan is the person I'm thinking of. And, and that's absolutely the case. You will struggle to develop as a fluent reader if you do not have a vocabulary that is broad enough to help you to understand the words that you come across. So it might be that. It could also be something as simple as a lack of decoding opportunities. We've talked about how there is an element of statistical learning that means that we basically need to meet a lot of this word data to put into the machine of our brain, again, I apologize to anyone who doesn't like a um, functional or particularly physical description of the brain, but that's the metaphor I'm going with. But if we don't have this data and we haven't run it through that, that machine, and, it, and then it can't have been tuned in the way that it needs to be. So a lack of decoding opportunities, a lack of time spent reading is obviously going to be detrimental. It goes without saying that that will depend from student to student as well. Some students will need more time, more experience with the written word in order to develop fluency. Because reading is learning, it's a form of learning, obviously, we could also talk about the issues relating to attention, issues relating to working memory difficulties, which links to what Neil said with regards to cognitive load theory. 
but really the key things that I've come across time and again are when it comes to the lack of development of fluent reading, the key ones are gaps in phonics, the, the knowledge and skills learned in phonics, language comprehension issues in particular, lack of vocabulary breadth and depth, and a lack of decoding opportunities, simply not enough words read and words read crucially in context. It's no good just reading them as a long list. They work in context. So yeah, I think those are the key ones. I think I can almost predict part of the next answer. So then if, if we understand how some children struggle to become fluent readers, how can schools support the development of reading fluency? I think there's just a few things I want to say from the outset, and then obviously I know um, then I'll let kind of Chris go into the, the detail of how it should be done, but I think I'd like to just offer uh, a what not to do. And in terms of what not to do, it's actually, and the key word here is free, it's not to give lots of free reading opportunities to children. Uh, and by that, I mean that you, that you allow children to read on their own without some kind of checking up or without some sort of short little interaction instruction with the children. There doesn't seem to be much evidence to support the idea that having children just read lots without any kind of adult uh, support actually leads to much difference in vocabulary, reading comprehension, reading attitudes, word recognition, or either um, general reading fluency. Would I be right in thinking that that's in reference to children at the kind of the earlier stages of reading fluency? Because presumably Absolutely. once they've become a, a, a developed a certain amount of reading fluency, then they're often at the races and can develop lots of these development yeah, word recognition through lots of experience. Sorry, yeah, I'm sure so you, you, you may well have been getting around to that. I just wanted to double check. Yeah, so if you're kind of, I'm talking all about is children tends to be around year two, year three kind of levels where I'm kind of talking about where kind of really to kind of say developing that reading fluency. I think there's a, a lovely quote in again in the Mark Seinberg book, Language at the Speed of Sight. Children who struggle when reading text aloud, they do not become good readers if left to read silently. It's their defluency just becomes inaudible. And actually, what they're doing then is just embedding really, really bad habits. So I, we've talked a lot about the need for actually, you know, reading lots of reading lots of text and you know, plenty of opportunities to decode. Yes, that's needed. You need to be really careful in how you provide those opportunities to make sure they're actually conductive of actually improving reading fluency. In terms, and I'll say I'll let Chris go into the specifics from the bits of research that I've done about how to develop reading fluency, there kind of tends to be kind of three successful uh, features or kind of three uh, uh, principles, as it were, which tends to be one, it needs to be oral reading there needs to be some form of uh, repetition and there needs to be some sort of guidance and feedback from ideally from a teacher uh, however and I'm sure Chris will go into this uh, momentarily uh, you can develop some sort of peer-to-peer -peer support in how that um, can happen uh, but in terms of how you might that might look like in the classroom I'll hand over to uh, Chris for that one 
Yeah, it's absolutely the case that there seems to be a fairly decent consensus in the research that repeated oral reading is a pretty solid and reliable way to develop children's reading fluency. Again, there's a, there's a parallel with the discussions I've had with you, Neil, in the past about retrieval, which is where the idea is that we talk about retrieval without often noting the fact that an unsuccessful retrieval event is useless. It's less use than just being reminded. A retrieval works when you remember, when you do successfully retrieve. It's successful retrieval that is beneficial. And it's the same with decoding. As much as I say, we need to give children lots and lots of decoding opportunities. What I mean is children need to successfully decode a lot. Now, at the earlier stages, that successful decoding is not going to happen without some kind of supervision and feedback. Obviously, there are some children who, as early as year one or year two, have, through a mixture of fortune, but most often experience, um, have got to a point where they can actually read relatively independently and you could say off you go you go and read and you're going to just orthographically map loads of new words you're going to love loads of books learn loads of vocabulary and you're just away at the races but that's very rare in say year one or year two in these crucial year groups of sort of year two year three year four if children are not at the stage where they can derive meaning, and I would argue some sense of satisfaction from the derivation of that meaning, then their independent reading is going to be counterproductive. So that being the case, how do we conduct reading? How do we ensure that children are doing lots of decoding? Well, obviously, if parents can support with lots of reading at home, and that's not always the case due to a whole variety of reasons but if they can then that obviously is going to be supportive of reading development and schools that are in areas where parents are able to provide that are obviously a significant advantage but that's not to that doesn't solve the problem for lots of schools and even those schools that are in those areas have a responsibility to ensure that they are doing what needs to be done to make all children fluent readers in the end the responsibility for developing fluent readers rests on the school rests on the teachers and it absolutely is right that it does to begin with frequent reading in reception year one year two on a one-to-one -one basis with an adult is crucial especially for those children who do not get the opportunity to read on a one-to-one -one basis with a parent or carer at home naturally this can be difficult to organize and some schools have circumstances that make this easier than others, but it is something to consider. Also, the adults that children read with one-to-one -one in school need to be trained in order to support children's decoding. They obviously need to understand the school's phonics program so that what they talk about and how they deal with decoding in those books can be supportive of what children are learning in phonics lessons. So how do we guarantee lots of successful decoding practice in the classroom? The most practicable solution that I've seen to this is the one that was proposed by Timothy Shanahan a few years back in an excellent blog called How to Teach Reading Fluency So That It Takes. It's a method that he has implemented in a variety of schools, I believe in the Chicago area with a great deal of success. And it effectively involves pairing children up, often in mixed ability pairs, modelling 
a nice short chunk of text to them, making sure that you discuss meaning and that they grasp the vocabulary, modeling a fluent read, and then saying, off you go, where children read the text to their partner, using that model to support them, taking it in turns and doing so repeatedly. It is essential that children read this text out loud three or four times. I would say three is a minimum under these circumstances. It is the repetition and it is the oral nature of the reading that seems to be consistent across interventions and classroom practices where this has been shown to be effective in developing fluency. So there's that. There's repeated oral reading. That's the first thing that you would need to include in your classroom practice on a fairly regular basis. I would say a couple of times a week if you're talking about particular sessions or 30 to 30 to 40% of your individual reading sessions if you're doing it every day would be what I'd be looking at if in say years two, three and four at a minimum. But it isn't just that. There are other ways to ensure that children do lots of decoding. There is a sense in which you can at least gamble on the idea of a slightly more passive version of decoding where a teacher reads and someone follows. Now, is there research to show at the moment that in the development of fluent reading that this is definitely a perfect bet? Not necessarily, but at the same time, it is a way to ensure A, that children come across a great deal of vocabulary, B, that they hear lots of the words and sentence structures that are, that are much more common in reading than in spoken language. But it also means that to some extent, at least, they are doing some decoding. I wouldn't bank on it as my only go-to for ensuring that children are doing lots of decoding, far from it. But the idea of getting lots of reading into your geography, history, science, other lessons in this manner where a teacher is reading to the class and the children are following along, I don't think that is necessarily the least sensible practice. It's something that I would advocate, though I wouldn't rely on it as my go-to way of ensuring children were doing lots of decoding. Because is it decoding? It's a very passive version of decoding, but I wouldn't gamble against it being useful as well. So having that as part of your repertoire is possibly a good idea as well. One thing I'd like to quickly mention is echo reading, because I've had some questions on Twitter about, well, do you do echo reading and why not? There is some research about the benefits of echo reading. I have tried to implement something akin to echo reading in my class. And what I found is that, and again, your mileage may vary, but in my experience, what I end up with is an echo reading as much as it's echo speaking. Those children who are not the most fluent, those that you most want to target with support for fluency are the ones who are most likely to just be looking straight at you and, re and repeating what it is you've just said, or at least the first few words of what you've just said without looking down at the page or even just pretending to scan the text. So I can imagine echo reading being quite an effective thing where it can be closely monitored in a uh, intervention group. But the idea of a teacher reading a sentence and then the children follow reading the same sentence and that necessarily involving even passive decoding is not something that I think 
necessarily works in classes of in large classes of children if you can get it to work then be my guest you know there's there, there is some decent research to suggest that it might but it's not something i would advocate because i think it's very easy for it to lead to a false sense of security for teachers and it's really really easy for children to fly under the radar while looking like they're echo reading when in fact they're not at all so yeah, I'm, I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of echo reading, but don't let that necessarily put you off. If you're interested more in the kind of some of the research here, lots of the papers I've already mentioned will talk about um, reading in particular and the development of fluent reading. I would say your go-to as a jumping off point is, and I hope I'm going to pronounce this cor correctly, but Padeliadu's 2018 synthesis of lots of research and it seems very sensible to me and it draws out the idea of repeated oral reading as being particularly valuable. Just one other thing to say, Tim Rosinski is famous fluency expert and advises the use of poetry and speeches as a particular text type to use when doing repeated oral reading because of the importance of ensuring that children are developing their prosody as well as their accuracy and their automaticity. I think he's right there. I think it's an excellent way to develop prosody. But personally, I have had more success when dealing with a, an array of different texts um, because I want children dealing with punctuation. I want them dealing with words as they look in nonfiction, in narrative, not just words as they look in a poem or in a speech or in song lyrics or whatever else we might use, but because it has particular, a particular sense of rhythm. But yeah, that's probably the key things there. Repeated oral reading and mileage. If you take two things away from this episode, it's that those are the key things for developing fluency. The second one, mileage, sounds obvious, but as as I apologize for repeating myself, as I've said this many times on the podcast, I've worked in schools, I've talked with colleagues and the amount of decoding that children do, particularly in year two, year three and year four, varies massively between schools. And I am pretty certain that that is one of the factors that leads to better or worse reading development. Yeah, I think if you're a, is this going to go out before September, Max? 21st of August. Perfect. Uh, yeah, if you're a new to reading lead, uh, being a reading lead in September, I think one of the most eye-opening days you can have is to actually set aside a day and follow a, a middle-ish attaining student around just time their whole day as how much reading they actually do maybe even you know predict yourself beforehand how much reading you think goes on and then compare it to what actually happens and I'm sure you'll actually be uh, shocked at how potentially at how little actual decoding uh, those children come across uh, there's not much more for me to add other than if you're thinking about well, why am I going to get children to, if I'm, 
if you're thinking this and we've talked a lot about repeated reading and you're thinking oh but aren't they just going to get faster at reading that um, particular section of text i think it's worth uh, noting that throughout much of the research literature on rereading that uh, there has been evidence of a transfer effect so just because they're practicing this one piece particularly a lot doesn't mean that then they're just going to get they're actually just getting really good at reading that one piece it does transfer to other different um, pieces of text that they may come across in terms of i think when you're thinking about oh, well, what kind of text do i want to select for children i think again mentioned in uh, Timothy Shanahan's blog, but I think you mentioned something about you're looking for about 10 words incorrect for every 100 words. So it's one to think about where you get these pieces of text from. And also that's kind of the roughly the limit you're thinking about. That's the right level of text that you want to be working with for fluency to actually take place. If you're doing something that's too easy for these readers, uh, then it's not really going to get those desired effects that you want either. Some interesting things, and, and Chris probably has more uh, research than I do, more experience with it, is that quite a bit of uh, fluency research talks about the use of audio tapes and how that might be a useful uh, way to help, particularly those children who are uh, slower. I'm um, thinking particularly about uh, Dauhauer's work, Chomsky's work, uh, Chomsky's in the 70s, I think Dahawas was in the, uh, the 90s, but having a, an audio tape, and obviously we won't be using audio tapes, but with, you know, the pandemic, with all every, there's not a child, I think that probably doesn't have a Teams account or a, a Google Classroom account, so, you know, if you have a, a child, you're thinking, oh, well, I know these children can read, but they are particularly slow, one idea might be how you might prepare and kind of support that a particular child might be you know you record uh, a minute and a half worth of you reading text give the child some text so they have that model uh, always there with them and finally one other thing that kind of looks to be quite useful from the research literature is this idea of uh, goal setting and setting children particular goals of getting reading a certain point reading a certain amount of text uh, within a certain amount of time that can really help but obviously you want to think about the conditions in which you do that make sure that they can you know self-monitor it but also realize that there's still there has to be then that comprehension element of it as well because what you don't want children to do is just kind of blurt their way through it and say ha 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 look at me I've read 150 words in 12 seconds or whatever and you know they've actually not taken any of that in I think one way that I think fluency uh, practice as a whole in terms of reading has gone wrong is that it has kind of become, right, how fast can you read this one piece, irrespective of those other things we've talked about, like prosody. Like, and again, whilst we talk about reading fluency being separate, it's there to help bridge into comprehension. So asking a couple of questions after you've done some fluency is I think a worthwhile uh, endeavour, not to say that you need to get uh, pencils and paper out and you know now write the answers to these five questions, just a real simple conversation about the text, a, a quick little summary perhaps, 
uh, would all be all that would be needed. Uh, but just so you're reinforcing this is important, but the reason why that we're doing it uh, is to improve your comprehension, not just because we want you to read really, really quickly. Because it's certainly, I think I can think of a few group of students who the minute you say, okay, I want you to read something quickly, they take it to that nth degree, they take it to that extreme, and then it kind of loses its purpose. I think you're absolutely right about the importance of not disconnecting meaning from any form of reading or any form of practice and fluency practice is no exception as soon as it becomes detached from meaning entirely then you've got problems because obviously prosody is directly connected to meaning um so yeah you have to take that into account it's also worth noting of course that accuracy will often come before prosody and before automaticity but prosody is often kind of the final stage of it so it might be the case that originally or to begin with in fact it certainly is the case that children initially will be relatively disfluent readers and you are working on their accuracy and automaticity and their prosody all kind of tied up together in the session we're not really looking ever to detach one element from it they have to come in unison you have to be teaching them at the same time though it's worth noting that the accuracy and automaticity might come first in terms of their development, just not in the way that you teach it. We've talked so far about the stuff that obviously targets fluency and relates to the research in ways of targeting fluency. But I apologize as this is the, this is gonna be me being the broken record, I hope for the last time, but because fluency is tied up with so many other things that we do have to consider the other aspects of teaching reading that absolutely will contribute to making readers more fluent over time. So language development, oracy being a key part of your teaching, that will develop children's reading fluency. When you're dealing with spellings and vocabulary, looking at morphological awareness, teaching children about morphemes, teaching them about the underlying structure of the English language, which, as I've said, is morphophonemic, will support them over time as well. But it's not just that. The, uh, making sure they're exposed to lots of rich sentences and sentence structures through the shared daily reading that you do, all of these things contribute to fluency. Yes, these might not be targeting it directly in the same way that repeated oral reading and reading mileage, for want of a better word, is doing, but it's still going to have an effect. It still could be an aspect that holds children back in their development as fluent readers. So do consider language development and oracy, do consider vocabulary, do consider teaching them about morphology. I guess the one thing we haven't mentioned, and some, it's something that underpins all of this, is the importance of assessment. Because if you don't know where your children are at in terms of their reading fluence, if you don't have some sense of where they're at, you are not going to be able to support them in their fluency development to the same extent. So making sure that you assess fluency using some kind of fluency assessment, you can find diebells online, for example, but equally at a push, giving children an age appropriate bit of text and seeing how much of it they can read in the space of a minute without them necessarily knowing that you are timing them. You want it to be their natural oral reading and 
making sure that you help them if they get to a word that they get stuck on for a couple of seconds so they don't get completely stuck. That can give you a sense of how many words per minute children are reading, which is a really valuable diagnostic tool. Alongside that, an assessment of prosody is really valuable. I'm going to say something a bit controversial here. I've had lots of people say to me, have I seen um, the matrices that people have produced and the scales that people have produced that try and specify different levels of prosody? I have, and I've tried to use them myself, and I've tried to use them with other teachers and teaching assistants. And what I find time and again is that the numbers that try and quantify this thing somewhat get in the way and actually when I strip it back and say does it sound quite a lot like their natural spoken voice then we get closer to what is a useful description of whether or not these children have developed prosody to a useful extent so assessment is obviously key as well and that's something that I would highly advise every school do they keep track of reading fluency for every child across the school I think once children are past a certain level maybe 120 or 130 words correct per minute with a certain level of prosody that's the point at which you can say these children are fluent enough that we don't necessarily need to keep assessing them but it wouldn't be the end of the world if you made the time to assess every child and their reading fluency throughout their time in primary education either. Yeah, I think that covers a lot of the bases, um, in including the stuff that you can use to target fluency directly and all of the other areas that might um, support children or might be causing them to struggle with their reading fluency. With all that said, I think an important caveat to add to every recommendation that we've given so far is that these are things that are based on our interpretation of the research into reading through the lens of our experiences. It doesn't mean this is the only way to do things. It just means that this is one way that we believe to be relatively sensible. Just one more resource to add on the... Uh assessment front and that's Hasbrook and uh, Tyndall's work. It's American but I have uh, rearranged it so slightly for an English audience of uh, an English education audience. Uh, what they've basically done is they went through different grades and they have worked out uh, how what their words correct per minute were in the very in the three different terms uh, and what that number was the different percentiles of those children so again there is no kind of magic number here um, this is just kind of all kind of down to anecdotal reports and all that kind of thing but from what they've said you know someone in uh, year three if you want to be in the top uh, 50th percentile uh, by summer term someone in year three is reading at approximately you know 100 words correct a minute judging by their norms, and that was in 2017. They did one uh, earlier, I think around 2006, and what they kind of found the differences between the 2006 to 2017 is that children are actually getting quicker in their reading throughout time. So now it's you know been a couple of years, it might be a few, uh, few more words up. So it just kind of, it's just a nice benchmarking tool that senior leaders, reading leads, uh, it's to, useful to be aware of. Yeah, and I'd, I'd be wary of using that data to say this child is 
at an expected standard for fluency for year two or at an expected standard for fluency for year three or whatever it might be, though this might give you a very rough impression because it isn't that accurate. It's a useful ballpark. It certainly can be used to say, yeah, we can tell that this child is often at the races and is going to be able to develop further as a fluent reader through independent reading, for example. I wouldn't use it for very fine grade no. aspects, but at the same time, that doesn't make the Hasbrook and Tyndall work any less useful. It can still give you a rough impression as long as we're not necessarily, as long as we're being aware that from text to text, you'll find children's reading rate can move, you know, 10, 20 words. So it is quite, it's bearing in mind that it's useful, but imprecise, like Neil says. That's, that's the kind of very sensible approach I think the members of the Tsabe family out there would uh, would take, you know, but I know I understand the need to clarify because it might not be perhaps be an approach that's exclusive. Just one more thing on that. That was for oral reading. Uh, if you are reading silently, then uh, it te tends to be a lot quicker. I think normally around two uh, for a very proficient reader, uh, it tends to be around 250 to 300 words per minute. So when you're doing these assessments, it's just really important that, you know, you're sitting there and the children are reading aloud to you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and worth noting, of course, as Neil says, that their silent reading is likely to be a bit quicker than that. And as they get more proficient, much, much quicker than that, like he says. I guess the last thing to mention is just to reiterate the fact that once children are relatively fluent and can effectively enjoy a book on their own and take meaning from it. Once they're at that stage, the very best thing you can do is encourage their independent reading, ensure that they are doing lots of independent reading through all those wonderful things that teachers do, like recommending books and trying to nudge children towards new and exciting books and supporting parents to nudge their kids to read at home without it becoming a chore. All of these things that are going to support fluency development over the longer term. The, if you want to learn more about fluency, then we will obviously link lots of papers. I apologize for how many there are, Kieran. I'll, <laughs> me and Neil will send over a set. But the ones in particular that I would recommend would be the fluency section of the National Reading Panel from 2000. Share on the self-teaching hypothesis, that share as in equal distribution, not share as in, do you believe in love after love? Um, that's from 1995. <laughs> <laughs> that's 1995. Um, Hudson et al, 2005, I mentioned. Pikulski and Charles, 2005. Kuhn et al, 2010, that's K-U-H-N. Eri writes on orthographic mapping in 2013. Rosinski's, I think it's called Fluency Matters from 2014, is really good. And for the active view of reading bit I mentioned, that's from 2021. And that is Duke and Cartwright. And the last one that I mentioned, Timothy Shanahan's, well, just follow his blog regardless, but Timothy Shanahan's, one of his blogs in particular, How to Teach Fluency So That It Takes, is a really good introduction to paired reading. For those of you that have read my book, I absolutely make it clear that his way of teaching reading inspired the way that I do it in 
classrooms and I'd highly recommend it. Which one do you start with? So if you're listening and you want to read these, where do you go first? Great question. If you want a really good overview of reading fluency, the best one is Kuhn et al. So K-U-H-N. The great thing about that paper is it talks about other papers' views of fluency and then puts them into a context and kind of gives a bit of a consensus. So I'd start there if you want to know more about what reading fluency is or the way that it's described in the research. If you're particularly keen on looking at the research into how to improve it, then um, the one that I didn't mention then actually, so Padeliadu's 2018 paper, which is called A Synthesis Of, um, is where I would begin. If you're particularly focused on paired reading, go to Timothy Shanahan. Well, it's fascinating as always to talk reading. I think we've got a few more avenues to go down, but this is certainly, you know, the third installment and just as interesting as each of those that have come before. I think all that's left to say is thank you, Neil. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening.